Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. Uh, Lord, we, we delight to give you praise. We love you, Lord, and we, we confess again the privilege that we have in being in your presence. And we pray, dear Lord, now give us ears to hear and eyes to see and open our hearts that we would receive from you as your word goes forth. Lord, we pray, arrest our attention. Lord, remove all those distractions that swirl around in our minds. And help us to hear and to receive. Help us to bend our lives and our wills towards you. We confess again this morning that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from your mouth. And we ask, dear Lord, give us a great appetite for this, your word, that it may accomplish its task, that it may nourish our souls this morning in the ways of eternal life, all to your glory. And so we pray, Father, that the instrument of your word this morning, the meditations of all of our hearts, would be acceptable in your sight. And we ask all of this praying in faith through the bread of heaven himself, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 14. I'll be finishing the chapter starting at verse 20. I'm sorry, uh, starting at verse um, 12 to the end, verse 21. I apologize. Please give your full attention now. This is the word of our God. Zechariah 14, starting at verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of another. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not give, go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there shall be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, in the pots, in the houses of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So for the reading of God's word, indeed the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. <clears throat> Well, it is always good to be back at home 
uh, with my immediate church family, you all, um, the saints in Traverse City, uh, extend their, their greetings and their thanks for sharing their past, your pastor with them last week. Brothers and sisters, we come this morning now to the end of our trip through Zechariah. Our trip through Zechariah, this Old Testament prophet of the minor prophets that are referred to as uh, this prophet of the time of the restoration, remember, historically where we are. We have seen again and again in Zechariah the visions, we've seen in words and visions and patterns and promise the story and the power of the gospel. Uh, we begin this series by acknowledging that Zechariah is a preacher of the gospel. Uh, we've seen over and over that the entire Bible, Old Testament and New, all of it, it is the book of the church. It is the people's book. It is a book for God's people, God's word for God's people. It is one singular story of promise and fulfillment. It is the story begun with creation, remember, creation out of nothing. And then the fall, that awful fall that thrust all of mankind and creation itself into ruin. The cosmic treason, you'll recall, that rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And then the beautiful promise, right, that promise within the curse that God would send one who would come and put an end forever to the enemy of God's seed. He will crush the head of that seed. And that's what is promised, right? This, this conflict in this unfolding of this, the fulfillment of this promise is the rest of history. We need a victor, right? We need a victor. And he came in the person of Jesus Christ to do just that, to crush the head, to defeat for certain, for all time, the enemy. I've said it many, many times, um, and I hope you don't get uh, weary of me saying it, but this is the core and the focus of all of God's word. This word, God's special revelation to his people, it unfolds along with redemption. God's working these things out. And I know this is basic to us, it is obvious to us, but it's good to be reminded again and again because that's what God's word does. It lays down and it reminds us again and again because we are forgetful. And we are feeble. We need to be reminded again and again. And this is why we say uh, about our church, our desire for our church, what we strive for is to be Bible-based and gospel-saturated and Christ-centered. Why? Because that's what we see in Scripture. And that's what we've seen these past 15 or so sermons as we've worked through the prophet Zechariah. We've seen again and again and for certain, Zechariah is a preacher of Christ. Or, to put it another way, this is the gospel according to Zechariah. And we certainly see this in our chapter today, this final chapter, chapter 14. Uh, in fact, chapter 14 picks up here, and it, uh, and it picks up a number of themes that we've seen throughout, and it brings them all together like a, like a masterful orchestra. And it describes here in chapter 14 that wonderful and amazing day, that last day in the beginning of the eternal new age, that glorious day when all things will be made new and all things will be set right. right? These are the themes that we see here. The day of the Lord, right, on that day. The line of King David, 
the divine warrior. These are things that Zechariah has touched, he's touched on already, and he brings them again to bear in chapter 14. And also remember these themes dealing with redemptive judgment, right? Salvation through calamity, through cataclysm. Salvation through judgment and calamity. God's enemies defeated and God's people are rescued. Remember we talked about the streams of renewing water and bringing back of Jerusalem's treasures. These are things that he's talked about. And then God's great upholding of his city. All these things come to conclusion in the conclusion of Zechariah. Zechariah is very much a book about the people of God longing yearning for the Lord in the midst of lament, discouraging lamentation. It was a very discouraging time, Zechariah's time, the people of God. And even for us, brothers and sisters, lest we think this is so disconnected, even for us, we now as God's people, we long and we yearn for the Lord. And we do so in the midst of a very lamentable, discouraging time. Let's look now briefly at the closing chapter. And as we do so, we'll, move, we'll look more at the big picture and the connections to redemptive history in general. We're not going to look in detail. Uh, indeed, we could spend months and months just on chapter 14, but we're going to look at the big picture and see the connections, uh, particularly to the New Testament and how the authors of the New Testament, particularly Mark, um, uh, brings these things together. Right, as I noted last time, I think we were together. Uh, chapters 12 and 14 um, are a unit. They're set off by that phrase in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, the oracle of the word of Yahweh, of the Lord. Right? All, you know, uh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the name of the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. The oracle of the word of Yahweh. And then we see this repeated phrase throughout 12 to 14, uh, this phrase, on that day, right? it, it, occur, it occurs again and again. In fact, it occurs 18 times in these three chapters. And in chapter 14 alone, we see the phrase repeated seven times, and it even closes the book of Zechariah. It concludes with that phrase, on that day. And so again, dear Christian, we're only skimming the surface of these, these great pictures that we see, these great topics but I want you to grasp the glory of what is going on here. I don't want us to get lost in the complexity of it all. And it's very easy to do. We need to remember always that God's word was given not to confuse us, not to make us lost. It was given for our good and for God's glory. Right? How do we know that? Well, this is what God's word tells us. It was given for, right? Remember Romans chapter 15. It says, Forever, for, uh, for, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Right? Romans 15. Or 1 Corinthians 10 similarly tells us this. It says, Now these things were written down for our instruction for our instruction, and then it defines who we are, on whom the end of the ages have come. Right? That's you and I, dear Christian. We. It was written down for our instruction. Us, on whom the end of the ages have come. Right? And so again, lest we feel that this is untethered from reality or for our reality, 
right? We need to ask ourselves that rhetorical question that requires no answer because, of course, it's true. Do you feel discouraged in life? Are you lamenting or sorrowful in our world? Now look with me now at the prophet Zechariah, and we'll see that the Lord has indeed made good on those great and glorious promises. That promise long ago in the garden, that wonderful promise within the curse that the Lord gives. And we'll see all that He has done. And that because of His mighty works and His great promise, we can rejoice and we can be confident of the certainty of life forever with Him in glory. Right? It's not pie in the sky. It's a certain fact for you who belong to Jesus. And that should indeed shape and inform our lives, even here before we get consummated there, before we are fully finally there. We can rejoice and be confident of the certainty of that life, eternal life with the triune God. Well, how can we know these things? Right? How can we know these things for certain? How can we be confident of them? Well, briefly, we'll look at this chapter again, very briefly, skimming the surface. We see three, things, three headings that we can uh, set this, this, uh, this chapter into, and we see them laid out for us. First, we see the restoral of Jerusalem, right? The restoral of Jerusalem, um, and this is a picture of paradise, right? It's a picture, not just promise, remember the horizons, multiple horizons for them. This is indeed a picture of glory itself. Uh, and then we see the last battle in the harvest of the nations, right? The last battle in the bringing in of the nations. And then finally, we see all things made holy, right? The sanctification, the making holy of all things. I just want to touch on these, and then we'll see how the Holy Spirit set these down and brought them together in the New Testament. We see first in verses 1 to 5, and then in verses 12 to 15, they talk about the last battle and the finale of all things of that battle. But in the middle, in verses 6 to 11, we read about the transformation that will result from the Lord's return to Zion. And we hear the change in mood from these two sections. Right? The day of battle will be like a day of darkness and doom. This is radical, extreme, frankly, terrifying language that we read, what goes on. But this will give way to what? Give way to a new day, a day of unending light, right? Indeed, where, where even it, in the evening it shall be light. It's beautiful and it's glorious. Listen to verses 6 to 11 by way of encouragement. It says this, And on that day there shall be no light, cold or frost, And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but an evening time there shall be light. On that day, living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the stream, to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea. And it shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain, uh, into a plain of Geba and Reman from south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel, the king's winepress, 
and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And glorious, what a wonderful promise, a picture of the promise of the end of distress and threat forever. But before the nations are transformed, they must be judged. Right? They must be judged. And we see this often repeated theme that we've seen again and again, this of uh, that final battle scene, verses 12 to 15. And then Zechariah moves to what? To the harvest of the nations, in verses 16 to 19. And through it all, there will be survivors, those preserved through that judgment. And having been spared, those survivors will come, and they will become worshipers of the Lord, Yahweh, the true and great King. And they stream into Jerusalem, and they fall down, it says, before the Lord. This, of course, is a picture of what we've seen before in Zechariah and in the rest of Scriptures. It's a picture of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Remember, the Abrahamic promise, that promise given to Abraham in Genesis 15 and then Genesis 17, that promise that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Right? It's part of those promises. Remember that threefold promise of seed, sand, and strangers, right? Or has elsewhere been said as uh, this promise of people, place, and pagans, right? Who are the strangers? Who are the pagans? That would come in as well and worship and be with God, right? These are the nations. And then the book closes with a picture of glory, right? Verses 20 and 21. It closes with this picture of glory when all things would be made holy. Again, listen to what's being said there. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Now, what a glorious, all-encompassing, macro, huge picture of what's going on, particularly in these last two verses, radical, thoroughgoing holiness, saturated throughout the land. Right? The Lord will have inscribed on them the words, holy to the Lord. Right? We've seen this before, even in Zechariah. Right? We saw this earlier, remember? It was those words that were engraved on the high priest's garments, on his turban. Holy to the Lord. And then the cooking pots, it says. The cooking pots of common use as well would be holy, just like those used in the temple. Permeating, saturated purity and holiness. And so do you see the glory and the wonder of all that this is? All that's going on, all that's being promised here? The absolute beauty and wonder? Zechariah gives us this spectacular picture of the divine warrior defending God's people from enemies that are attacking. And this divine warrior is coming forth in triumph with his holy ones. He's coming to the city of God from the Mount of Olives. And he is inaugurating, right, bringing in a new creation, a new creation order. An age in which the enemies of God are defeated and converted even. 
An age where all things, secular, worldly, ordinary, right, the profane, are made sacred, sanctified, holy to the Lord. We see these very things in Zechariah 14 unfolded where? Right? At the culmination of all things, in the life of Jesus. I take the Gospel of Mark, for instance. That's why we read Mark 11 earlier. We see there the triumphal entry. Jesus is coming in, this triumphal entry into the holy city. And we see the Holy Spirit set this down, purposefully modeling on that triumphal procession of the divine warrior that we see in Zechariah 14. Even the customs of the first century Greco-Roman military processions are modeled there in Mark. Take some time, I encourage you later this Lord's Day evening uh, to read Mark 11 and read uh, even to the end of Mark and you'll, you'll see these connections as they come out. And we see several of these connections from Mark 11 uh, in Mark from Zechariah 12 to 14, 14 specifically, right? First, what did we see in Zechariah 14? We see this procession start at the Mount of Olives and comes forth. The journey of Jesus, of course, into Jerusalem begins there at the Mount of Olives. And then we see as Jesus goes forth, he goes along with the disciples. The disciples come with him. And then finally we see Jesus. What does he do? He cleanses the temple by driving out the traitors, right? the money changers. Again, Zechariah 14, 21, and there shall be no longer, there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. It's the fulfillment of these things. And there is this general pattern of Zechariah that Mark seems to have in mind when he gives his narrative of, of, of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And the point that Mark is making, for those who are familiar with their Old Testament, who are familiar with the prophecies, who are familiar with Zechariah, the point he's making, Mark, is that the divine warrior is Jesus. Jesus is the divine warrior, and he comes to the holy city. And in coming, he begins what? A new, consummate age. It is an age where all the enemies of the Lord and all the enemies of his people are defeated. Right? There is a, a cataclysmic judgment upon them, and all, and all things as a result are made holy. It's a redemptive judgment, right, we talked about. And notice as we look at his procession, his entrance into the city, right? he's coming forth into the city. Uh, we see the pattern of the first century. Um, I mentioned the military conquest parade or processions filling in the picture for us. In those processions, the warrior king would come. And he would come and his soldiers would come with him. And they proceeded to the city with celebrations celebrations and symbolic representations of that king's authority. And once that warrior king came and he entered the city, he would show that the city was his, right? He would appropriate that city. And he would do so through a kind of ritual, like a sacrifice. And this is why when Jesus enters the city with his disciples, what happens? There are shouts of, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. 
And here the crowds are acknowledging his authority. Right? And remember what they did further to acknowledge this authority. You remember? They laid down cloaks and palm branches on the road. And this again is an acclamation of military triumph, of conquest. This is something what we see in Revelation chapter 7. It says, As I, uh, after I looked, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. What were they doing? It says they were crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne throne and to the Lamb. So Jesus lives out this picture of the divine warrior's procession that we read about in Zechariah 14, as well as the first century uh, processionals that would happen in that day. And notice too, where does Jesus begin? Right? We saw it already. The Mount of Olives. Right? There he begins his journey, his, his coming into Jerusalem. And he enters Jerusalem with his disciples in the middle of shouts of praise and symbolic acknowledgement of his authority. And if we were familiar with the common practice, what would we expect to see next? Right? What would be the last part of this pattern? Right? The last part of the pattern would be for Jesus to lay claim to the city through a sacrifice in the temple and set down his reign going forward. But what does Jesus do? Mark 11, 11. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. But he goes into the temple, he looks around, and he walks out. The next day he returns. But the most surprising thing is that is the way that Jesus, this divine warrior, completes his triumphal procession. He walks not into the city, but out of it. And on his way, he's not carried up by the praises of the people. Rather, Jesus is weighed down by the weight of the cross. And when this Jesus, this divine warrior, arrives at his destination, the sacrifice that he gives, that he offers, is not an animal on the altar, but himself on the cross. And this procession, it would seem, it would appear, doesn't end with shouts of exclamation, uh, exaltation of glory, but the humiliation of his defeat. But is that how it ended? Is that how it ended? We know that three days later, the slain divine warrior made another procession. Right? Do you remember it? This time, his procession was back up from the grave. And he goes forth, resurrected, ascended, and seated in full conquest of all of his enemies. Oh, how glorious is that, brothers and sisters. Glorious indeed. And so, then what? Right? Now, those last steps in his earthly procession look completely different. Right? In this warrior's combat, with all the forces of evil, it ends up that Jesus' defeat was actually his powerful and glorious victory, his conquest. 
And through that wooden cross, the slain warrior triumphed over them all. Colossians 2 tells us, He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. You see it? You see it. And this surprise, twisty ending, an ending that took them by surprise indeed, it was through it that the age of blessedness had begun in our world. Right? Inaugurated, begun, started, kicked off. And just as the divine warriors coming from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem brought in, inaugurated the new creation order in Zechariah 14, so also Christ Jesus, his procession following the same route ended in his death and resurrection. And through that, the new creation has broken in. It has dawned. You know the verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And because of these things, dear Christian, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church like living water flowing from Jerusalem for the harvesting of the nations. Jesus himself, in his defeat of the evil powers and his exaltation as Lord over the world, will bring in the fullness of the new creation that has already begun in his resurrection. Right? That's a promise. It will happen for certainty. Right? What a glorious time to behold. The new heavens and the, and the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth will be so fully and concretely saturated with God's presence and His glory that it sanctifies and changes it into something fully glorious and resplendent, right? It's that wonderful word, resplendent glory of the Lord, saturating, permeating everything. And the Apostle John tells us about this new creation, the new heaven and the new earth, and he purposefully connects it to the earth, early chapters of Genesis and many other themes in Zechariah 14. Right? Genesis 1, it starts, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation ends with a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. Right? In Genesis, God calls into being Lights, right? The sun, the moon, the stars. Zechariah 14 says, On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day or night. But at evening time there shall be light. Right? And this foreshadows what? It foreshadows, again, the last book of God's revelation, right? It ends, there will be no more light. They will not need light, the light or of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. In Genesis, right, we see paradise is created as a garden, watered by, the, by a river, and has, uh, has the tree of life. Zechariah 14.8, on that day living water shall flow out of Jerusalem. Right? And then in John's final vision in Revelation, paradise is recreated with what? Complete with the river of the water of life. And on each side is what? The tree of life. In Genesis, man rebelled. 
And he broke covenant with God, bringing, in, uh, bringing on all of creation, a curse and pain and suffering. In Revelation, what do we find? There is no more curse forever. God himself wipes away every tear from our eyes. No more death, mourning, or crying, or pain forever. Here's the thing, dear Christian. All the way through from Genesis 1 to Zechariah to the end of Revelation, the point is that God will have his way. He is a good God. He will redeem. He will transform. It's hard for us to imagine or even conceive of these things. But on that day, all of creation will be changed. It will be changed. It will be made new. And in it, we will no longer carry the scars and damage and injuries from the curse and brokenness of this world. I don't know about you, but if you suffer in this world, that is a magnificent promise. That is a glorious truth that we can lay hold of, dear Christian. No more scars, no more hurt or injuries, the vestiges of any pain, brokenness. It's gone. Gone. Well, praise God on that day. On that day, the new heavens and the new earth will be so filled with God's presence and His glory, unveiled and glaring, that it will be transformed into something glorious and radiant and holy. And here's the thing. Until that time, you and I, all who are in Christ, we are the community of that new creation. Here. Right? Your lives are there. That's your home. That's your citizenship. But until the consummation of all things, until His return, we are called to be here and called to infect this cursed world with the love of Jesus and the promise of the gospel. We are called to live the ethic and life of that world here and now. We are truly living that already not yet life that we talked about before. Already not yet, right? We are already raised, seated, reigning, united to Jesus, new creations. But we are not yet finalized and consummated and fulfilled in glory. We still drag with us our broken bodies. Oh, but it is coming, brothers and sisters. It is coming. It's coming. And if you belong to Jesus, you are, the Holy Spirit tells us, we already read it, those upon whom the ends of the age have come. Know it, dear Christian. Know that. Know that in Christ the powers of the old age are doomed. They're doomed. Know that the new creation has already broken into this age. Brothers and sisters, I'll say it again. Don't get lost in the complexity, in the sometimes confusing wonder of God's word, particularly in the prophets. I know they can be difficult. I know they can be challenging. But we need to see that it's not that there is a promise of a divine warrior to come and put an end of all the evil. And an end to all the enemies that torment the church in the world. Right? That's glorious and awesome. But it's really not the glory point that presses into your heart and presses into your soul. 
That point of glory is that Jesus is the divine warrior who has accomplished these things for His people and that you are one of His people. That's the point. Do you see that? Not just that there's some awesome truth out there, but the most wonderful and glorious and comforting, encouraging truth for you, His people. And if you belong to Him, His victory won your life. His death conquered death for you. All of you who, who belong to Him. Not just some nebulous factoid out there in the world to think about and ponder on. This is for you, dear Christian. This story, this history, promise and deliverance, creation, fall, redemption, and glory, it is meaningless if it is not drawing you in, recreating your story into that story. I pray that you consider these things. For the first time or for the hundredth time, consider them, reflect upon them, think about them. This is your life. You belong to Jesus. This is your life. This is your worldview. You're not to take on the worldview of the world and be informed uncritically, unchallenging the world into your brain and allow it to, to inform you what you think, how you think. It is God's word. This is your story. This is your book. And through the gospel, you were drawn into that glorious story. And the old world is being put to death by the preaching of the gospel. You're being made new. It's a glorious thing. I pray that you would consider these things. Consider them and rejoice, brothers and sisters. The Lord has worked mightily throughout the ages. He has given us wonderful, gracious promises of redemption and deliverance. And because of these things, if you have placed your faith in Jesus and you've surrendered to this most gracious and glorious and tender King, you can rejoice and praise Him for the life that He promises. And here's the other really cool thing. That when we do so, He gives us strength upon strength. Right? He gives strength. We are, he, his strength is manifest through our weakness. And His promise is to change us and to transform us. And we begin truly, in, actual, in reality, to morph into the people that He cre recreated us to be. Right? It goes back to, we've said it many, many, many times. Do you see who you are according to the declaration of God's Word? Do you see who you are? A new creation, united to Christ, made new, freed from the bondage of sin. Do you see who you are? Now be who you are. Be who you are. When we do so, we begin to live the lives that He desires for us. We begin to love and give and sacrifice even radiate from ourselves, through the Spirit working in us, the character of our King and Redeemer, Jesus. We, as God's people, every Lord's Day, we are experiencing the inbreaking, as I said earlier, of, the, of eternal glory, a small glimpse of the life that we will have with Him forever, with the triune God. What a wonderful promise and privilege that we have. Oh, dear Christian, may we never take that for granted. May we never see it as a small thing. It's not a small thing. It is everything. It is everything. And as the Spirit continues to work on us and in us, 
May we, with joy and delight and passion, live more and more for Him, for His glory. When we go from this house, from the house of the Lord, even now, back into the world, back into the world in which we are strangers and pilgrims, it is not our home, but we are there for Him, for Jesus. As we go, go with His love. And go loving your neighbor. Showing the love of Jesus. Oh, what a wonderful thing it is to be followers of Christ. And what a wonderful Lord that we have. Let us indeed do all that we do to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for your love. We praise you for this word. Lord, we ask that you would indeed... Help us to believe what you tell us therein. Lord, help us to know, increase our faith. Help us to believe the truth that we are free in Christ. We are not, no, no longer in bondage to sin. It no longer has reign over us. Lord, help us to live for the glory of Christ. Help us to live lives that reflect the truth of who we are. Father, we thank you for the big picture that you tell us again and again in your word. We praise you for the promise of victory, one in Christ, and that will be consummated, fully finalized and fulfilled in his second coming. And Lord, we await that glorious day. And until then, we pray, give us strength to bear witness to the truth of his love and who we are in him for his glory. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.